I'm Seth. And I'm Jonathan. And welcome to No Experts Allowed. You know what we love? The Bible. You know what we don't love? When people use the Bible to scare or hurt others instead of allowing it to transform them and their communities. So we're trying something different. Two Bible nerds hosting a podcast that isn't about technical details, but is about two simple questions. What's the story and what's the point? One of us will prepare for the conversation. Let's call them the non-expert. The other will respond to the story as they hear it. We'll call them, and you, the storyteller. So we can show you that you don't need to be an expert to hear the Bible speak to our world. Join us. Let's tell a good story today. Seth? Jonathan? A blessed day to you and your family. Thank you. Greetings in the Lord. Thank you, Paul. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, maybe a little too on theme for tonight's uh, scripture reading, but I'm glad to be with you. I'm, this is usually a highlight of my, of my week. I say usually, not because it's sometimes bad, because sometimes other exciting things happen during the week. (laughs) Good backpedaling. Thanks. To get myself out of this hole I've dug for myself entirely, I have a very important question for you. What would you do in this particular situation? Would you want to only be able to greet people by using the phrase, how's it hanging? Or only be able to say goodbye to people by using the phrase, take it sleazy? Okay, I think... I think I'd have to go with the greeting, how's it hanging? I mean, I feel like at least you have the rest of the conversation to try and either A, recover, B, make them just forget about it, or like C, you could just kind of say it fast and try and move on. But if the last thing you say to someone is take it sleazy, I just don't know what they would think of you or if they would ever want to talk to you again. Right. (laughs) The... I, I think I'm with you. And because the thing about it is, I think I'd rather have a funny, like, send-off than a funny greeting for that for that same, for kind of that same thinking. But Take It Sleazy is just so bad that I don't see many, especially professional situations, ministry situations, where you could really recover from that as you're leaving an interaction with someone else. How's it hanging... You just kind of become that guy who can then move in. My question would be like, does that include the greeting if you're leading a worship service? See, I wondered about So do you have to say, how's it hanging? Peace to you in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Or whatever the call to worship is or anything like that. Or, um, you know, in a court of law. Or, (laughs) I don't know. This would be tough either way, but I think I would definitely go for how's it hanging. I'm with you. I think you do have to start all of your interactions that way, not just interpersonal ones. It's just like you have to start. If you were at a podcast, you would have to start your podcast like that. Maybe we should go back and redo the beginning of this so I can say, Seth, how's it hanging? Oh, I thought you were going to say every podcast episode we've ever made. Go around at everyone. Yeah. Much better than the ending of, thanks for helping me tell it, and take it sleazy. (laughs) (laughs) 
Okay, well, the theme of greetings is obviously heavy on my mind tonight because that has a lot to do with our passage tonight. So will you go ahead and read our scripture? I'd love to. This is 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the assembly of Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, the Messiah, grace to you and peace. We always give thanks to God for all of you, as we make mention of you in our prayers. We constantly remember the accomplishment of your faith, the hard work of your love, and the patience of your hope in our Lord Jesus the Messiah, in the presence of God our Father. Dear family, beloved by God, we know that God has chosen you, because our gospel didn't come to you in word only, but in power, and in the Holy Spirit, and in great assurance. You know what sort of people we became for your sake when we were among you. And you learned how to copy us and the Lord. When you received the word, you had a lot to suffer, but you also had the Holy Spirit's joy. As a result, you became a model for all the believers in both Macedonia and Achaia. For the word of the Lord has resonated out from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, your faith in God has gone out to people everywhere. This means that we haven't had to say anything. They themselves tell the story of the kind of welcome we had from you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God, and wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the coming fury. And tell us why you picked that translation. All right, well, this particular translation is from the scholar and Anglican priest and former bishop N.T. Wright. This is his Kingdom New Testament, a contemporary translation is the subtitle. And N.T. Wright is one of the most foremost Bible scholars in the world. He's a professor of New Testament, the University of St. Andrews in Scotland. Um, and while some of his some of his interpretation, like I hope I would interact with anyone, you know, some of it I'm more responsive to than others. N.T. Wright was one of the scholars who really opened my eyes to a new way of thinking about my faith. His book, Surprised by Hope, was one of the ones that opened my eyes to a new way of thinking about, honestly, about life, especially in his focus on resurrection and the idea of eternal life being more than just some kind of disembodied experience after you die on this planet but being more about God infusing and reinstating life into the places where it's absent and missing here. And so N.T. Wright has done a translation, I'm sure not on his own, but attributed to him, where he's worked through the entire New Testament based on his scholarship and work. He's also one of those one of those people who seems to be releasing a book every other month or something like that. He's just such a prolific writer. And if there's a New Testament book, if there's a subject uh, that's related to biblical scholarship, he's probably written something about it. <laughs> so as you read through that, though, through N.T. Wright's translation of this first chapter of 1 Thessalonians, what stood out to you? I love the line, and you learned how to copy us and the Lord. Paul has talked about how thankful he is for them. And then he's like, okay, you you did exactly what I, Paul, Sylvanius, and Timothy did. 
Oh, and also by copying us, you were copying the Lord. Like Paul cracks right. me up. Like, yeah, it's just like we were talking about the other week of uh, about from Philippians four, <laughs> where it's like obviously I'm the model that yeah, you should be exactly. following. <laughs> yeah, Paul. I think Paul has an ego. Like I think we don't we all though definitely wouldn't Freud say that we all do? <laughs> I just don't write about it and. People don't, like, read my letters and my writings about it as, like, worshipful experiences. (laughs) I think I often try to read Paul as if he doesn't have an ego. Like, he, he's so, he has to be humble because he's in the Bible. Mm. Right? Like, he he has to be. But that's obviously not the case. Yeah, that, that idea of kind of modeling yourself, that being an example is really evident through this this first opening chapter of of first thessalonians and i think it it not only extends from paul and sylvanus or or silas uh that's mm-hmm. another rendering of of that name uh and timothy not only them modeling faith to the thessalonian community but also the thessalonians then modeling their own faith to the people of macedonia which was a region of the ancient world where the city of Thessalonica or Thessaloniki was found, and also Achaia, which was another major city in that region too. So it was talking about the whole of their like really known world and experience was affected by the way that they responded to the example of faith given to them. And I think that's a really powerful message to offer, again, here in a greeting. Uh, you know, there's this kind of formalized language it feels like to open this letter talking about who's writing it in what deity's name they're writing it (laughs) and then talking about all these reasons for celebration we we see at the beginning of this passage to a theme that continues throughout the book just these moments of paul kind of standing up for himself too it's not as evident in this passage but in the book especially of first thessalonians there's a lot that kind of seems to be Paul responding to maybe some criticism or maybe kind of coming to defense of his ministry that, I don't know, it adds an interesting layer to all of this, to him, especially him being so flattering and celebratory in this first chapter, to then go in the next chapter even and talk more about his own ministry. But I think his highlighting of kind of the effect of the Thessalonians' faith in their community, in their region, is a really, really key emphasis to pick up on. The idea that he's kind of defending himself also helps me make sense of of the line that (laughs) you learned to copy us and the Lord. He's already building it, right? He's already building his defense. He's He's like, I did it right. Well, a couple other things that are interesting about this writing... And especially Paul's relationship with the Thessalonian church. There are documented times in scripture from the book of Acts of Paul visiting this community several times. So while, of course, he is maybe building his case to defend his ministry, there's probably some stuff in here that's really authentic too. Some really genuine affection for this community that he visited and helped build in this really important city in the ancient world. Um, This is actually also the oldest New Testament writing that scholars, at least as scholars, identify it. So the New Testament is ordered a certain way, 
primarily by style of writing, if we could say it that way, to, you know, to kind of understate it and oversimplify <laughs> things. But chronologically, the letters, the gospels, all come from all sorts of different time periods and decades from kind of mid to late first century and early second century, very early second century uh, in, in the common era. And the fact that this is old, one of Paul's oldest writings or his oldest writing that we still have at least some access to or some remnant of, and that it's also one of the writings that is considered to be, at least from what scholars can understand, like really likely to be Paul himself, writing this rather than maybe other writers attributing things to Paul or claiming to be Paul, you really can get an insight into the type of person he was and how he viewed his ministry at the time. Hmm. And approaching a community that he loves really has, has him putting it all out there in a way that prioritizes what he views as his mission and so I know that was a lot of a lot of context and a lot of information about the book, but I think reminding ourselves again, as we did last week with Philippians, that this scripture for us was a letter mm-hmm. in a particular time, in a particular setting, and helping us understand a little bit more about the setting and the people between whom this correspondence was going something that's really important as we approach the content of this story itself. Was there anything else that stood out to you? There's some kind of emphasis on living out faith, right? It's not just, mm. it's not just okay, well, you received the message. It's that you're also doing it, right? We constantly remember the accomplishment of your faith, the hard work of your right. love. Like that's doing something and copying Paul is is to do something, right? It's not just like, okay, I copy exactly what he told me to believe and I have that in my head. Like there's something that's incarnational about it, I think. That seems, seems to me what he's, what he's lifting up and what he's really thankful for. Is that how you were reading it? Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, and even the word model, you know, it's, it's not something, it's not an idea uh, or a belief statement that you could he- adhere to. There is something tangible, there's something actionable about what's happening in the Thessalonian community that Paul is celebrating and Paul is indicating that has affected their entire region. And that emphasis on action, together with the emphasis on like being an example, being a witness, if you wanted to use that language, um, it seems to be really evident here in terms of being a key focus for, for Paul's at least introduction to this letter. And one piece of that that's really interesting is you highlight that dynamic on action. And there's another dynamic here that I just want to highlight briefly that is one of those key markers that scholars use to say, I think this is really Paul, or to date some of these writings. And that's the little inklings we see throughout this, that Paul believes that Jesus is returning to earth really soon and really quickly. And so you see some of that. In verse 3, towards the end, it's the patience of your hope in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Messiah, in the presence of God our Father. And that reference has undertones of our hope for Jesus' return. And then you see that at the very end as well, because Paul's direction for them to serve this living and true God is given alongside 
the direction to wait for God's son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, as if that was something that they were going to experience in their lifetimes. That was something that was very normal among the early church, that they thought Jesus was coming soon. And as you get beyond things that may have actually been written by Paul, you see more speculation about, hey, this might be taking a little longer <laughs> than we thought. And here we sit almost 2,000 years later, um, understanding and believing kind of a different time frame when it comes to Jesus returning to usher in the reign and realm of God in its fullness. But there's, there's something here, though, about that tension between your action now is noteworthy and celebrated, but you're also supposed to, but you're also supposed to wait patiently for God. Hmm. And I don't know how that sits with you, but for me, that, that there's a real tension there between those two ideas. Yeah, I agree. Like it's diff- it seems really difficult to do both, right? Like, or you're, I'm tempted to just be like, well, why why do my actions matter? This is this is like the pessimist in me. Why do my actions even matter? Jesus is coming back yeah. soon. I should just hunker down. Well, isn't that the example of the from that great episode of Parks and Rec where <laughs> there's the people in the town of Pawnee who worship the lizard king yeah. Zorp? And they're they're like, oh, he's coming back tomorrow. They've reserved an event in the park to be ready for Zorp's return. <laughs> And they're all just living so carefree. They're spending money without any thought to it. They're like saying and doing things that they wouldn't do otherwise necessarily. And I'm of a similar mindset that if I knew things were going to be set right in that way, I don't know that I would take that directive seriously to, as as you pointed out, to do that hard work of love that the Thessalonian community was supposed to be doing. No wonder Paul's so encouraging. Right. I mean, he's probably like, yeah, I, I see the temptation to do nothing to like, to not do that hard work of love as you called it. But they're doing They, At least in the first chapter, they're doing it. It seems like it. Yeah. Hmm. Well, I think that's this idea and this theme of being an example is one that for me kind of transitions us into the story about what the point of this text is. And so I'm going to kind of break the fourth wall of the podcast a little (laughs) bit, but I've been thinking a lot today about today being National Coming Out Day, uh, a, a holiday that celebrates the experiences of those in the LGBTQ community as they tell their story, as they kind of take their first steps into settling into their identity as they've come to understand it, taking those big steps of coming out to friends, family, co-workers. And I think so much about how much harm the church has done to members of the LGBTQ community and was just hit really hard by, I mean, verses six through eight, especially talking about how incredible the Thessalonians' faith is, but especially in verse 8, for the word of the Lord has resonated out from you not only in Macedonia and Achaia, your faith in God has gone out to people everywhere. And this means that we haven't had to say anything. It's clear that as a community of faith, we're called to be an example 
that our hard work of love is supposed to be our identifying marker of what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ in the world. And yet, unlike Paul and Silas and Timothy, who haven't needed to say anything, we have so much to say. And we have so many times where we didn't say anything when we needed to, while we let harm and injustice be perpetuated. And so I'm, th- I'm thinking about the power of being an example and how the church can kind of live into that desire to be a shining light, a group, a community of people who are, I keep going back to this phrase, but I'm really coming to like it, but going <laughs> to that hard work of love to point to a different reality than the one that we, persi- we persist in. And I've just continued to feel broken today over the harm that the church has done to our LGBTQ kin in the name of a faith that's even in the name of love sometimes. And I'm having a hard time wrestling with that and reconciling that. Well, thanks for sharing that struggle. I don't think I, I don't have a way to resolve it for you, but I'm thankful that you're that you're at a point where you can talk, kind of talk about it, and we can wrestle with it here together. Well, what do you think the idea of being an example, you being an example as a as a follower yourself, the church being ex- an example as a community, how do you hope that that example communicates, or what do you hope that example communicates to the world around us? <laughs> and maybe where are some of the places where you see some some dissonance or some disconnect between what you hope for and what you actually see play out. Sure, I hope for for the church as a community of Jesus followers that uh, it's marked by what I'll call radical inclusivity, that everyone is welcome. And by everyone, I mean, I mean everyone, right? It's so easy to, to mark people in various ways. But I think that the church is, is open to everyone because... God's love is there for everyone. And I also think that that's one of the stable places where I've seen the church falter. Like to find to find lots of different ways to pick it to pick at people and say, "Oh, you don't you don't quite fit here or belong." And on National Coming Out Day, that that's one of if not the chief example of the way the church has has ostracized people, has kept them out. It's a way the church has been anything but loving in the way that it has talked about people whose gender expressions and sexuality are different. And when you think of the experience of communities that have suffered not only at the hands of the church, but by the hands of the dominant culture, those are the communities where Jesus made his presence known and felt. Those are the communities where he ate, where he got his hands dirty as they dined together and ate good food together and talked and he listened. I just want to know what it means to be the church whose example of love doesn't push people back to the margins. Or better yet, whose example of love brings the church to the margins so that the existence of their community can be in those same spaces where Jesus was. Not in the halls of power, 
not in the halls and places of prestige, but among the people who everyone else says doesn't deserve a fair shot. Or worse. And I'm with you. My experience of the church, especially lately, has been so much about holding on to power and organization. We are truly in such a different time in terms of the place and the structure and the institution of the church. But it almost <laughs> feels like you're, you have to embody that Thessalonian spirit of moving away from what is expected of you to actually follow the same Jesus who the institution is claiming to speak for. And when it comes to the inclusion of LGBTQ people fully and entirely in the life of the church, not just welcoming people in because you, quote, disagree with their lifestyle, no, like welcoming them in fully to the life of the church by offering marriage, offering ordination. I come from a denomination in the United Methodist Church that has said no to that experience and has continually pushed its own people to the outside for far too long. Even as we work to change that, I'm still mindful of the harm that we're going to need to repent of and seek forgiveness for, even if we move into a new reality as a denomination that is on paper or in our policy more inclusive in that sense. <laughs> and then the next step is to live it, right? Right. I mean, it's like... Like, okay, Paul gives the Thessalonians kind of these these ideas and yeah. then they have to put them into practice. Like it seems the same way in our in our in our policy and polity. Yeah. Like we can encode them in our organizational structures and like bylaws, but then the next step is is to live them out. Yeah, and trust me, I love bylaws and things as much as probably anybody. Mm-hmm. But, you do. But that <laughs> <laughs> But that next that next step is truly the hardest. Taking, taking these words seriously, considering the example that we have in communities that are welcoming all people in today more effectively. But it, it takes, takes a lot of care and attention and a lot of work. One aspect of kind of the difference between our context and Paul's context that I want to take a moment to recognize is like right now the church has some sense of power and has for you know maybe 1700 years most people would say maybe since around constantine made christianity the official religion of the roman empire but in paul's time when he writes to the thessalonians in like about 54 ce christianity or the jesus followers are like a marginalized group within a marginalized group like, they're already not participating in a kind of Roman civil religion. They're not worshiping Roman gods because a lot of people are Jewish. And then within Judaism, it's Christianity is like a, a, even like a small sect within Judaism. These are like the marginalized of the already marginalized. So I just want to kind of recognize the difference between their position and our position and how that distorts and the way that we think about some of these questions and the way that we identify with the margins or skew them. Yeah. And maybe that's the example that we need to look to here, Seth, is the Thessalonians are being celebrated in one of the most important cities of the ancient world, 
the city of Thessalonica or Thessaloniki. It's kind of this intersection of major Roman roads, and there's a lot of there's a lot of business, there's a lot of enterprise, there's a lot of trading of goods. And there, they are taking Jesus' message seriously to make space for the poor and the hopeless and the hurting and the lost. And maybe rather than some disembodied idea of our faith, we can take good instruction from this passage away by truly trying to make a Thessalonian community one that does the hard work of love on the margins, of the margins, with the margins, all of that. Because existing outside the systems of power is how the faith that you and I hold today took root in, to begin with. Well, I'm going to tell another Will Willimon story. Oh, man. <laughs> he's, such a good, he's such a good storyteller. He is, but he's a weird dude. He's a weird dude, for sure. When he was Dean of Duke Chapel, they had a, a visiting preacher come, and he takes them into the chapel, and the person says, wow. He says, yeah, isn't it beautiful? Like, what an amazing building. And the guy says, well, that, that wasn't really what I was thinking. And well, one of them goes, oh, well, what were you thinking? And he says, Jesus followers have come such a long way from Bethlehem and Asia Minor. Kind of the way that we think about these institutions, these big, beautiful church buildings that are separate from people on the margins, kind of by inherently, is somehow removed from the experience of those early Jesus followers who did their work on and with and in the margins. It's like a, it's a self-critique as a Lutheran for me because that's the Lutheran church is great at building, building grand buildings and waiting for the people to come in, right? Where do we go from here, Jonathan? I think we've come to a point where we need to pray. I think that's about all we can do right now. I know. Let's pray. God of the outsiders, Paul celebrated the Thessalonians for their hard work of love with those who were hurting, with those who needed a place to belong. Help us insist on moving away from the power and into the pain so we can continue the ministry of Jesus who embodied your love and grace in the world. Mindful of the many names by which your children cry out to you from all over the world, I pray in the name of the one who brought us a long way, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. To our listeners, thanks for joining us. Be sure to subscribe and tune in for our next episode. Seth, what story will we tell next week? Next week, we're talking about Matthew 22, 34 to 48. Jesus talks about the greatest commandment. But until then, leave us a review and find us on Twitter and Instagram to continue the conversation. Thanks for walking us through that story, Jonathan. Thanks for helping me tell it. <laughs>